Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hello, this is Phil Spector. It is so difficult at this time to say words that would express my feelings about the album to which you have just listened. An album that has been in the planning for many, many months. Back in the early 60s, the teen pop producer Phil Spector set out to make the first rock and roll Christmas album. We told him, you got to be crazy. That's Darling Love of the Blossoms, who sang lead on one of Spector's hits, He's a Rebel. Nobody puts out a rock and roll Christmas album, but the more that we got into doing it, the greater it sounds. By the time we got through with the album, it was like we were all just mystified about how great it turned out. Spectre's Christmas album changed holiday music forever. It went from kind of boring, his word, to top 40 rock and roll songs that have been covered by everyone from Mariah Carey to The Offspring. Rolling Stone once named it the best holiday album of all time. Journalist Grill Marcus, the first reviews editor for Rolling Stone, still marvels at how Spectre managed to pull it off. Even at the very end with Phil Spectre coming on with this simpering silent night routine, personalizes it in a way that this was something special, this was something no one had ever really done before, and to make real rock and roll Christmas music, to make Christmas a rock and roll holiday, and combine it with one of the great soul performances of all time. So that's what happened with this record. May we wish you the very merriest of Christmases and the happiest of New Years. And thank you so very much for letting us spend this Christmas with you. An album of seasonal standards and new Christmas classics sung by a bunch of girl groups may sound like the most wholesome thing in the world nowadays, but the path to a Christmas gift for you from Phil Spector was anything but cheery. Plagued by clashing egos, tyrannical work schedules, and a presidential assassination, there's darkness under this tree. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. And welcome to our special bonus holiday episode, where we're telling the twisty true story behind a record that was high on the original 500 albums of all time list. A Christmas gift for you from Phil Spector. In the early 60s, Phil Spector was a 20-something producer on the rise, having formed his own record label with his partner Lester Sill, Valesse Records. 
Spector came into the partnership with a ton of hits to his name, from the Teddy Bears 1958 track, To Know Him Is To Love Him, to Benny King's 1962 tune, Spanish Harlem. With the label, Spector worked with girl groups like The Crystals and The Ronettes, to carve out chart toppers like The Ronettes, Be My Baby, to The Crystals' Da Do Ron Ron. But for more on the record that no one saw coming, here's Rolling Stone news editor Brenna Ehrlich, who writes about music and crime. First, you should know that we weren't able to talk to Phil Spector for this podcast because he's currently serving time in prison for second-degree murder. We'll get to that later. So to make this Christmas album, originally called A Christmas Gift for You from Phyllis Records, he assembled a group of musicians at California's Gold Star Recording Studios, and that's where he began building his wall of sound. It's this recording technique that he created which is basically what it sounds like, a massive, lush, orchestral arrangement. And this approach made him one of the most influential pop producers of all time. What made the Beach Boys want to make records? That's Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, who coincidentally released their own Christmas album the following year. And he also says that Spectre's record is one of his all-time favorites. Anyway, Spectre handpicked singers to voice the Christmas classics, like Lala Brooks, who flew out to California without the rest of her group, the Crystals. She was just a kid at the time. Phil was never the type of person to come to you and say, hey, we're going to do this project. I think he felt more like he was the boss. And we were so young. I first met Phil when I was about 13. I was flown out to California to put down the tracks, the lead vocals. So when I got to California, he just showed me the music and I sang it. And Darlene Love sang on Christmas Baby, Please Come Home, Rolling Stone's top Christmas song. That song stands out because of how we did it. Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich hadn't finished writing the song yet, and they were writing it on the phone, or the lyrics rather, while we were in the recording studio. Phil was putting the music together, and it was like, like you were cooking dinner. I can remember Leon Russell. He was the piano player on all of those Christmas songs, but mainly on Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. Phil just told him to just play, just play, whatever you feel, just play it. He told Hal Blaine, give me some more drum kicks, drum kicks. And we were almost at the finish of the day of doing it. And then he called Sonny Bono in to play the tamarind. I mean, it was just like you're baking something and you keep throwing all the best ingredients into the pot to make it come out the best. Christmas Baby's become a classic. Thanks in part to David Letterman, who used to have Darlene Love on his show to sing it every Christmas. I thought it was going to be a one time only, and I uh, ended up doing it for 28 years. I told David about five, six years ago, I said, you're the reason why this song is so big. And he didn't want to take credit for it. I said, David, people waited to hear you say, now it's not Christmas until I hear Darlene Love sing this song. And that's just radiated all over the country. And I couldn't go anywhere around October, November, December without people stopping me on the street saying, you know, it's not Christmas till I hear you sing that song. In fact, the whole record has served as kind of a blueprint for Christmas music for years to come. Just listen to Lala Brooks' version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town.
Bruce Springsteen was clearly inspired by this cut when he went on to record his own rendition in the 70s. I think Santa Claus is coming to town sticks in my mind because you know why? Because Bruce Springsteen copied it. At the end of the day, I love Santa Claus is coming to town because I love that Bruce Springsteen copied my version of it. This album set a new precedent for Christmas songs. They didn't have to be corny and old-fashioned or silly. Holiday music could rock, and it could top the charts, even decades after release. Again, Darlie in Love. I think that record made such a huge impact because when it was recorded, rock and roll was just coming into its infancy and it was starting to grow. And I've talked to people like Bruce Springsteen and Elton John and a few other entertainers and they believe that Phil Spector put a shot in rock and roll and especially when he put the Christmas album out because nobody till that time, not a rock and roller had put out a Christmas album. So one of the reasons Phil Spector wanted to make this record in the first place was because he loved Christmas, despite being Jewish. And according to Darlene Love, he brought his passion for the holiday to the studio. It just wasn't Christmas outside, but it was Christmas in that studio. Phil went and got lights, Christmas tree, and we were hitting Santa Claus hats. And then he made the, the studio cold like it was outside. It was 105 degrees that year, but in that studio, it was freezing. So I used to go in, i say, oh, no, 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 Phil, listen, we can't sing in here, it's too cold. And he would, like, warm it up a little bit. But sometimes we would just have to have on jackets to keep ourselves from freezing. So in the beginning, it was great, I guess, like everything else. Phil Spector already had a reputation for being eccentric and demanding. And Love says the sessions progressively got more uncomfortable. Phil would start bringing his bodyguards to the sessions for whatever reason. And he found two of the biggest men on the planet to be his bodyguards. But when we all first started off, it was a lot of fun. It did get a little intense because of Phil and his, his guns. He wanted to play with guns in sessions. I wasn't having it. I wasn't having a party. I'd drive up and they say, Phil is in there acting up. He got his guns. I said, well, I see y'all. I'm going back home. I didn't even want to go inside to see what was going on. Lala Brooks remembers this too. All he would do is spin him around and put him, he won't want to spin him around and put him into his holster when he had around his waist. So I didn't know that they were loaded. And I don't, I don't know today, but I know they were real. Seems like a strange thing to bring into the studio. <laughs> Not strange, it's crazy. But that's because Phil, I think he was insecure in so many ways. I think his insecurities made him different. Phil Spector's erratic behavior in recording sessions was part of a career-long pattern. Lala remembers how Spector would treat some of the musicians, like Sonny Bono of Sonny and Cher fame, successful singer-songwriter and producer in his own right. He worked for Spector early on as he was making this Christmas album. Sonny Bono was the sweetest person Phil could ever have around him. Every day, Sonny was there, but he treated Sonny like a piece of crap. And I was there as a child to witness, but Sonny wasn't stupid. Study took all that crap and he learned from him. That's when he came out with I Love You, Babe, because he learned from Phil. He learned from Phil's madness. He learned from Phil's abuse. Some of the madness that Lala's referring to involved incredibly tough work days. It was intense. Phil had long hours. If I put down tracks, I think I would be there from 12 to like 5 in the morning. Mind you, with nothing to eat. Phil wasn't the type of person to bring in a pizza. I remember as a child, going to the vending machine where you get peanuts and soda. 
I used to fill up on peanuts and a Pepsi Cola to fill my stomach. He wasn't the type of person that would say, let's take a break guys, let's give an hour and we have lunch and it's on me. No, no. So everything we did with him was for Phil's benefit. Losing sleep, putting down the tracks. I remember doing to do and run and I was into 50 something tracks and 40 musicians in the studio and him going over and over and over. It was all about Phil Spector. And despite all the work that went into it, it wasn't exactly an immediate success, mostly because of what happened right before the holidays back in 1963. At 1.25, the motorcade moves into the downtown area. Death is six minutes away. In a warehouse, a sniper with a rifle poised waits. The legend goes that the album dropped on November 22nd, 1963, the same day that President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed by an assassin in Dallas, Texas. Release dates were kind of fluid back then, though, so it was kind of hard to prove. But journalist Griel Marcus remembers hearing songs from the album on the radio before the president's death. Well, it would have been in the fall of 1963 when it was released, and it went on Top 40 radio in the Bay Area and everywhere else, I guess. And it was just getting constant airplay, and everyone loved it and kept their radios on to hear the next song, whatever it might be. And then President Kennedy is assassinated and, and Christmas programming just dies, just goes away. The whole nation, you know, does not want to hear, can't stand to hear, can't process messages of hope and celebration and togetherness and family. And so it all disappears. Spectre was understandably crushed. And for a while, the record was very hard to find. Greel remembers looking for it for years before he actually met Spectre himself in 1967 at a conference on rock and roll in Berkeley, California. And at one point during a break, I went up to Phil Spectre and I said, Mr. Spector, I've been trying to buy your Christmas album for years. It's just impossible to find. And he pulled out a business card from his wallet and he handed it to me. And he said, you write down on this card any record of mine that you want. And you send the card back to me and I'll send you those records. And, you know, talking in this very tough guy manner. And I said, okay. I wrote the Christmas album on the card. I sent it back to him. A week later, the album arrived in the mail. After shuttering Phyllis Records at the end of the 60s, Phil Spector hooked up with the Beatles and reissued the record via their label Apple Records. And that is when the wheels really started to turn for a Christmas gift for you. The album dropped in 1972, finally hitting the U.S. charts with a vengeance. Phil Spector changed the name of the album to A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Spector. And he even put himself on the cover. Spectre's holiday masterpiece went on to find its home on best of lists worldwide, including Rolling Stone's 2003 list of the 500 best albums of all time. But 2003 was another fork in the road for Phil Spectre. A few decades after Darlene Love complained about Phil and his guns, Spectre shot and killed actress Lana Clarkson at his California home. And in 2009, he headed to prison. Title of court and cause. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Philip Spector, guilty of the crime of second-degree murder of Lana Clarkson, 
in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony, as charged, for, as charged in Count 1 of the indictment. He further signed the allegation that in the commission of the above... Having known him as a child, Lala Brooks is conflicted about Phil Spector's fate. I wasn't surprised with the ego thing when he brought the woman to his mansion or whatever. But I don't know if Phil killed her. I can't say because I don't know if Phil was that crazy. Maybe because there's some side of me could see this niceness or softness in a crazy way. But all I could see from that is that you stole from children. So what goes around comes around, even though I don't wish it on anyone. I'm not a hater of Phil, but it could be anybody. When you do wrong, you get wrong. And I wouldn't want anybody to be in prison wrongly accused. But Phil had not been right. He wasn't right. He stole everything from us when we were children. So what do you expect? Brooks says she never really got the payment she deserved from the hit she sang on, which was a common complaint from women on his label. Do you get royalties from the Christmas record? We get royalties, but we'll never get what we deserve. We'll never get what we deserve. Both Darlene Love and the Ronettes have sued Spectre for unpaid royalties in the past. Ronnie Spectre of the Ronettes was married to Phil for just a few years back in the late 60s and early 70s before she says she escaped from his mansion barefoot. And I never knew what, what goes around, comes around, and all yeah. that, until, uh, you know, he went to prison. Then I knew what it meant, because <laughs> I'd been in prison in, in the mansion for seven years. I didn't go anywhere. I never saw a movie. I never did anything in California, because everything was brought to me. And Love says she cut ties in the mid-'70s after a humiliating recording session. We went in the studio to record this song, Lord, If You're a Woman, and Phil started bashing me. It was a lot of people in the control booth. John Lennon was in there, Cher was in there, and he was like trying to make me look like a puppet of his. They kept saying, you know, sing it again, doll, sing it again. I don't like the way he said it. Well, he never treated me like that before. So after a couple of hours of him treating me like that, I took the earphones off my ear, put them down in the chair, put my coat on and walked out the door. And I never saw Phil Spector again until I saw him in court 20-something years later with my lawsuit against him, and I won my lawsuit. Still, the music is untouched by all this darkness. And when you listen to it today... One of the things you can hear all through the Christmas album is joy and delight and humor and the sound of people having fun. And I think that's what's kept that music so vital, so vibrant, so present after all these years. We'll get into some of the greatest holiday albums of all time after this short break. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, 
Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different than our last round tables, and instead of talking about the album that we just dug into, we're going to open it up to the genre that this album is so legendary in and talk about holiday music. Um, I'm joined by Rob Sheffield, Josh Gondelman, John Dolan. Can you each tell me a little bit about yourself and basic overview of holiday music? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it mixed? Let's start with Rob. I'm a Christmas music fan of very simple beliefs. I believe in having a simply wonderful Christmas time, not simply having a wonderful Christmas time. (laughs) That pretty much sums it up. Hi, I'm John Dolan. I'm the reviews editor at Rolling Stone. I am extremely pro-Christmas songs and Christmas albums, which I realized when I did a top 25 Christmas albums list for the rollingstone.com a few years ago, I just didn't realize how many great ones there are, and it was hard to get to 25. So I became a real true believer in the power of Christmas albums during that list. I'm Josh Gondelman. I'm a comedian, writer, uh, writer and producer for Jesus and Marrow and Showtime. I am uh, hot and cold on holiday music. A lot of people, so far, we've had a lot of talk about Christmas music, which is, I think, because it is the dominant variant within this genre. And as a uh, the, the loudest Jew on this podcast, I have some thoughts. <laughs> I'm excited to dig into these thoughts. But first, let's start off with the very album we were just talking about earlier in the episode, Phil Spector's A Christmas Gift to You. And John, this topped the list of the 25 greatest Christmas albums that you put together for Rolling Stone. And it even made our first 500 greatest albums list. Why is that? I think what makes it just so sort of rising above just being a great Christmas album into being a great album is to hear this is, you know, it's Phil Spector, it's the girl group era, it's the Ronettes and the Crystals, and to hear them do these sort of Christmas standards, you know, Frosty the Snowman or whatever, and Rudolph the Red as Reindeer, with the same passion they would bring to like, he's a rebel or be my baby. It just has this intense sort of teenage power to it combined with the grandeur and majesty of these wall of sound arrangements it just really kind of hits home and i think what puts it really over the top is darlene love's performance on christmas baby please come home which is this song of absence and loss and sort of teenage wasteland amidst this sort of you know winter wonderland and it considering the audience for this thing was you know going to be completely teenagers brings this real sort of adult and kind of like you know, grown you know, sort of sense of longing and loss that you might not expect from what could have just been like a throwaway fun holiday season stocking stuffer type record. One of the interesting things about it is it's Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys' favorite album of all time. It starts off feeling like a party, but ends up kind of having this alone in my room quality. It's very powerful. Josh, had you heard this album before we enlisted you for this podcast? 
I'd heard selections of it, including the aforementioned Christmas Baby, Please Come Home, which is great. And there's so many great songs on this. And I think John kind of nailed it in that they sound like songs, right? That's, I think, what make what takes it from like, oh, this is a pleasant song to hear around the holidays, maybe in a Walgreens or whatever, or while you're trimming a tree to like, oh, this is this is like a song that people would listen to. The version of Christmas Baby, Please Come Home has kind of the same appeal of like, All I Want for Christmas is You, the Mariah Carey classic, in that it's about Christmas, it sounds great, but it's also like about people. It's not just like, oh, here comes Santa Claus down Santa Claus way. It's like, grow up. (laughs) Talk about what you who you love and what you've lost, even at Christmas. (laughs) And John, what went into the making of Rolling Stone's best Christmas albums list? And what were you looking for in a great holiday album? I think what you look for is, are the artists in the tradition and and showing the love for the tradition, but also kind of making it their own. And the ones that kind of rise to the top are those ones like there's James Brown's Christmas albums are great. And the Motown Christmas album is great where they're just kind of throwing themselves into these songs and having a lot of fun, but also sort of like adding a soulful quality or just their own sort of take on what makes the Christmas record great. Also, without the Phil Spector Christmas album, every Martin Scorsese movie would be 10 minutes shorter. Couldn't do it. Yeah, you'd really have to. A lot of montages couldn't yes. happen without yeah. a. Yeah. You, you hear Ronnie Spector sing Frosty the Snowman, you know Robert De Niro is about to kill somebody. It's the soundtrack <laughs> of every Scorsese movie, as it should be and always will be. <laughs> do you each have favorite holiday albums? Personal favorites? Absolutely. For me, my favorite Christmas album of all time is a very special Christmas from the 80s. Only the 80s, this could have happened, where the aforementioned classic Darlene Love singing Christmas, Please Come Home. You too do that song. They recorded it on a sound check and they turn it into this beautiful song. It's basically about Irish immigration across the ocean. This incredibly beautiful version where Bono sings Christmas, baby, please come home as if it means absolutely the world to him. It, It ends with Stevie Nicks doing Silent Night. I rest my case, but really... So much great stuff on A Very Special Christmas that only could have happened in the 80s. Lots of quintessential 80s artists. Run DMC doing one of the all-time classics. It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mom's making chicken and collard greens. It's an absolutely perfect hip-hop Christmas song. To me, A Very Special Christmas really, really holds up over the years. It's a, a beautiful and strange time capsule. Between 1968 and 1970, James Brown made a Christmas album every year. And they're compiled on James Brown's Funky Christmas, which takes the best tracks. It's great. There's like Santa Claus Comes to the Ghetto and there's like Hey America, It's Christmas. He has these passionate kind of calls to sort of justice and unity and love. The Hey America, Christmas title track is incredibly funky. The couple more that jumped out to me when I was doing this list was the Willie Nelson one from 1979, Pretty Paper, which has just got this laid back, really sweet after hours Christmas, sort of like his standards albums like Stardust. And it's really kind of laid back and beautiful. Another one that surprised me that I really liked was The Ventures, the surf rock band from the early 60s made a Christmas record. It's just this beautiful guitar paradise kind of thing of them just doing the silver bells or whatever. And it sounds like the Velvet Underground. It's really wonderful. And so I was just always impressed. There's so many, like, if you want to go to the jazz side, there's the Ella Fitzgerald one is incredible. The Frank one's incredible. The Elvis Presley Christmas record, which Irving Berlin tried to get banned because he hated his version of White Christmas so much, is is kind of sweet. So there's, there was a bunch, but those kind of jumped to mind. What about personal favorite holiday songs? What are the things that make you all feel super festive once it's the season? One that's a huge favorite for me in the genre of sort of new wave Christmas songs. 
from the 80s. The, the Waitress's Christmas Wrapping is just really a perfect song. It's really, it's a rom-com. It's not about toys. It's not about presents. It's not about sentimental memories. It's about a single woman in the big city who just wants to spend Christmas by herself. And of course, there's a romantic twist at the end. Spoiler alert, stop listening for the next 10 seconds if you don't know this song. The plot twist at the end is she forgot cranberry sauce, so she has to run out to the all-night supermarket. And there she sees the guy she's had a crush on all year. And they, they smile in the island. They say, you forgot cranberries too. And it's a wonderful cornball romantic ending to, to me, just a, a perfect Christmas song. Bruce Springsteen's version of Santa Claus is coming to town just is like so much fun to me. Like it sounds like celebrating, you know, Santa Claus coming to town is like a thing you would tell children. It's not like for adults to say to one another, but he sells it so hard that you're like, does Bruce Springsteen still believe in Santa Claus? And that's so charming to me. That's how psyched he is for Santa Claus is that you're like, this grown man thinks Santa's real. (laughs) I'm like, who am I to argue? He's the boss. (laughs) And that's based on the Crystals version from the Phil Spector record. That arrangement that he does is what is is based on that. Which is also awesome. Yeah. It's so Clarence yeah. stepping in as the voice of Santa is just the coup de grace. It's the star on top mm-hmm. of the tree, really. <laughs> <laughs> and both of those versions yeah. have a great saxophone solo. Speaking of Clarence, it is just like, it's fun. It sounds celebratory. Those two songs to me, they, the first time they like pop up on the radio or like on a, you know, some kind of streaming mix i'm just like oh this is swell i I love to hear it john do you have any favorite songs you want to shout out yeah actually pogues a fairy tale of new york which is about just drunks in new york getting fighting their way through christmas after christmas actually one that i really didn't know about until i was working on this list was marvin Gaye's song um i want to come home for christmas which was in 1972 which released as a single it's on the cd version of the motown christmas record but it's sung from the perspective of a POW in Vietnam. And it's like a very moving ballad with actually some kind of cool country guitar on it. That it's just him wishing his family well and hoping there's a peace treaty and just he wants to get back home. And it's very, very sweet. And it kind of ties back to a lot of the big Christmas standards of the 1940s and stuff were really kind of for America during World War II. Like people were far away from home and, you know, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. It's kind of that kind of vibe, but updated for the Vietnam era. And it's really pretty powerful. Josh, in a 2011 essay called Christmas Music, Do Your Worst, you bravely spoke out against the barrage of Christmas songs you have to hear every December. If you could choose three holiday classics you can block from ever hearing again, what would they be? This is a great question, and I don't want to sound like a hater, even though I am one, but I will say there are lots of holiday songs I like, lots of Christmas songs I like, but I think the worst ones for me Little Drummer Boy is up there. It is too serious for a song about a child who plays the drums. It's just too somber. It's like the use of parumpa pum pum as like a somber note of emphasis is just like, I never have any use for that in my life. Do they know it's Christmas time? Or do they know it's Christmas? Excuse me. That's a pretty weird colonial one. And then... People expect you to say Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. And here, people don't like it. They think it's corny. This is a secret. As a Jewish person, any Christmas song that I hear that when I'm not ready for it 
just sounds that bad. <laughs> like it's that song sounds no worse than most of the other ones. And some of them are just for children, right? Like here comes Santa Claus. That's not a song I need to hear on the radio. I don't begrudge its existence. I don't want people not to sing it and enjoy it. But it is like if I'm doing some holiday here, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I'm like, that's like hearing Row, Row, Row Your Boat on the radio. <laughs> like, play me the ones for grownups, please, when we're in public. <laughs> I will say, as, as someone who went to Catholic school for most of their life, I had to relearn how to like a lot of Christmas songs and a lot of the holiday mm-hmm. songs. So Rob and John, do you have similar, a collection of holiday classics that you would rather never hear covered again or ever hear out in the wild? Yeah, I gotta agree also with Little Drummer Boy. It's just a big drag. It's funny, it doesn't show up too often on these albums because people are like, eh, I don't know. That's a bummer of a song. So I guess I'm with Josh all the way down. Except for the McCarty song, I like that. But going, I think, two for three about Josh's picks for worse song. I didn't mean to come out specifically hard against McCartney either. I don't mind as much. I just feel like people hate on it. And I'm just like, come on, this is worse than, like, it's not worse than Little Drummer Boy for sure. And nobody goes that hard against Little Drummer Boy. <laughs> Sorry to join the chorus about the Little Drummer Boy, but... Every parumpa pum pum is an angel loses their wings. It loses its yeah. wings, yeah. <laughs> an angel quits being an angel every time there's a parumpa pum pum. They get five minutes off being an angel yes. for that mm-hmm. Christmas time. Yeah. yeah, they get to swear and smoke cigarettes yes. and stuff. A song about a little kid playing music, as, as Josh said, being that depressing. The parumpa pums are especially a problem. I'm not crazy about that one. Everybody has different ones that uh, that they love or hate. The first Noel is a a real, real, real neck for me. Talk about like a song that is sung over and over again every year, despite having almost no melody and especially almost no lyrics. Not to pick on Josh and think of written in the past, but you did once tweet, listening to Christmas music, (laughs) starting right after Thanksgiving, implies that Jesus was the kind of person who would have celebrated a whole birthday month. When is the appropriate time to start listening to holiday music? The day after Thanksgiving. I have a take. Let's hear it. I came up with this today, but I think it holds. I I feel really good about this. I understand day after Thanksgiving. Again, in the home, whatever you want. I don't mean to sound like uh, a 1994 Republican that's like, what are you doing in the privacy of your own home? But like, what I do want to say is in public, radio stations, stores, any place that does public audio programming, here's what we do. December 1st, you start, you get one hour of holiday music programming on that day you can split up however you want one three minute song on the hour every 20 hours one hour in a row whatever you want to do it's yours december 2nd two hours by christmas eve you can go absolutely wild 24 hour holiday music programming and then one more day for christmas obviously you can't do a 25 hour audio program but i think that gives you you know if if you're a place that's only open eight hours and you want to play eight hours of holiday music on december 8th that's your prerogative but i think it's not that the day after Thanksgiving is too early. It's just all at once is so much. It's such an onrush of holiday music. And I think if we ramp up and build, not a tolerance, the opposite, we like build the excitement because it is mostly Christmas music. So I think building it up to Christmas, that's the move. And I feel really strongly about this. I feel like I, I'm ready to take all criticism on it, but I love this idea. It's like this- how are you going to enforce this by going store to store? Are you going to have to like, how? what's the enforcement mechanism on this uh, policy? <laughs> it's a great question. I think it's tough to legally enforce. I don't want to get like the police involved. That seems like a real dicey situation. I think it is norms and shame based enforcement. 
Rob, when do you start with listening to holiday music? Day after Thanksgiving. That's when the period, the season is full rush. What, what are you going to put first? What's your first go-to? It's like, it's the next morning. It's Friday. What's your first song to throw on when it's time to start the Christmas rush? For me, a, a personal part of my ritual celebration is the John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John Christmas album, which shockingly, I don't think made your list of the, the greatest <laughs> holiday classics of all time. I, I, I might suggest reconsidering. Their version of Baby It's Cold Outside is so genius, especially the, the way they handle the, the casting, which is that Olivia Newton-John is keeping John Travolta at her home very late. And at the end, he says, ah, I'm staying. Their version of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, you're saying, how could a John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John version of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree possibly get any better? The answer is simple. Kenny G sax solo. Wow. <laughs> so for me, this is the record that sort of, it shakes the snow globe of the Christmas season for me. That was a massive critical oversight on my <laughs> part. I really feel like, talk about norms and shaming. I work, feel work like in I progress, work there. in progress. And, yeah, and, right, right. It's point. a living, it's a living document, like the Constitution. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and also, your list. Until I read your list, John, I had no idea that a Weezer Christmas existed. I, I cannot thank you enough for well, bringing that that's, into my it's, life. <laughs> it, it's, it's so bad, but it's so funny because they only do the most Jesusy Christmas songs, and he does them in that deadpan flat delivery. It's really kind of a dark, weird record. But yeah, it's number 25 for sure on that 25 album list. I want to shout out a new holiday classic within the last, I guess it's not even within the last 20 years, within the last 30 years is Adam Sandler's The Hanukkah Song. That song, so important to my life because I was in elementary school and that happened. And first of all, it immediately put into the holiday music canon a Hanukkah song that's not specifically about a dreidel, which is like, this was huge for us. By us, I mean all Jews, younger than 65 <laughs> at the time. And it was like a fun, cool thing that like other kids liked and thought was cool. So that was very exciting. And it did every Jewish person's favorite thing. It created a list of cool people who were and are Jewish. We needed that. When I was nine, 10, when Adam Sandler's What the Hell Happened to Me album came out and that song was on it, it was just like, oh, thank goodness. These are Jews I was not aware of or people I was aware of, not sure they were Jews. Huge, just a big gain to know that there was a professional baseball player who not only was Jewish, but converted to Judaism because he was swayed by its religious majesty. And that, oof, that meant so much to me as I as I hit double digits as a child. Total classic, total classic. I remember the first time he did that on Saturday Night yep. Live and it was such a bombshell. Yep. It was all anybody talked that entire month. The sheer volume of... Jews who are not known as Jews, even to the point where he's breaking down, you know, Paul Newman's half a Jewish, Carrie Fisher's half two, put them both together, what a fine looking Jew. When I heard Paul Newman's half Jewish, you, the the rumbling in the ground you could hear was Absolutely. every Jewish person going, we'll take it. Um, Absolutely. Beautiful, incredible. Beautiful Seismic, moment. as you said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another favorite Hanukkah song is uh, Hanukkah Rocks by Gefilte Joe and the Fish. It's a banger. I don't know it. Hanukkah rocks all around my block. I'm embarrassed. No dreidels. What are sort of other new classics of the last couple of decades that have broken through? Taylor Swift's Christmas Tree Farm. It's a relatively new banger that I think has a canonical chance. But you compare everything to Mariah Carey's Christmas song and it just sort of fades in comparison. She really nailed the trick of doing a 
modern Christmas song that has become a genuine standard. I will say that Ariana Grande and Lady Gaga have made very good attempts at original Christmas music. Lady Gaga did a a remake of Little Drummer Boy called Christmas Tree, which is a very, very Mm. dirty song that uses Little Drummer Boy and makes that song palatable. And then (laughs) Ariana did a a trap pop Christmas and chill EP pre Thank You Next, but sounds like the holiday version of Thank You Next. Those have become part of my, my Christmas canon. It's really true. I think Ariana is just going to keep banging out more and more classic Christmas songs. Her Tell Me Santa song from yeah. a few years ago. I, I loved that song because it sounded like it was really sweet and pious and you pay attention to it. And it is so <laughs> filthy. That's, it's kind of it's what you want in an Ariana Christmas. Song, yeah, that's like know? the grande zone, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. There is such a, a small pool of subject matter that a Christmas song can be about or a holiday song can be about outside mm-hmm. of the religious fair, like that you really have to hit a lot of the major themes of like Santa or dreidels or something. That's kind of like, this is a product of the holidays that we are hitting. Right. On. What are your favorite scenarios in a holiday song that you've heard? I like the sort of lonely ones, the sort of like across the universe one, like the sort of like 2000 miles by the pretenders or actually this year, since so many people during the holidays won't be able to, go do stuff with their families if they're being responsible, which hopefully they all are. These songs about kind of like absence and distance really sort of, I think, matter a lot or can take on a lot of meaning. It's funny. It's usually kind of the last thing I want in Christmas music. I I tend to avoid seriousness and actual emotional content in Christmas music. Like a great example, you mentioned The Pretenders doing 2,000 Miles. That's a great sad song. Another is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which is a really effective tearjerker. Boy, I'm never in the mood to be that sad, (laughs) but especially not at Christmas. Wow. And it's why I've never been crazy about a Charlie Brown Christmas, even though I get that it's heartwarming and everything, but... You know, it's it's depressed kids and smooth jazz. <laughs> dangerous combination. It's so good, though. I love the ones that kind of split the difference. Like we were talking about Christmas, baby, please come home. Right. And that's um, that's one that's like about romantic longing. It happens to take place during Christmas. That's it's like almost the like is Die Hard a Christmas movie of Christmas songs <laughs> because it's like it happens that's, at Christmas but it is that's about so right on oh <laughs> my god you. yes my personal stance is the weirder the better and so I, I love songs like I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus which is a slightly traumatizing song oh yeah the Michael Jackson the Jackson 5 version <laughs> is, is he's like I'm gonna tell dad he's you know it's Michael he's like 1971 yeah, or whatever it's really kind of dark <laughs> And Grandma got run over by the reindeer, also yeah, very right. traumatizing. Yeah. <laughs> and are there any artists who have not attempted a holiday album that you would want to hear one from? Okay, this is a wild curveball, and it's just for my personal taste. But I do feel like with all the kind of Catholic resonant imagery and their affection for Bruce Springsteen, I would legitimately love a Hold Steady holiday album. I don't know why there hasn't been a Mountain Goats Christmas album. Oh. Yes. It's just it's just teed up there waiting for him to, to knock it out of the park. I think it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, he's done every single concept, but no Christmas record. That's so true. Yeah. Talk about, though, emotional crushers. Oof. Yeah. I'm already planning to avoid it, like, for sheer emotional self-preservation. <laughs> it's only a matter of time until it exists. Also, I think a future Christmas album would be absolutely <laughs> canonical. The idea of 
a total Christmas concept with just Future going all the way into that. Future and Drake could sort of revisit their teamwork in What a Time to Be Alive and just, you know, What a Season to Be Jolly and just an entire album of Future and Drake doing songs about being really miserable and very heavily sedated at a strip club in Christmas, I think would be a classic. I assume it's just a matter of time before they do that. It might have been released while we've been talking. Yeah, this is one of the best ideas I've ever heard, for real. <laughs> I would listen to it. Oh, it would just like the the only Christmas album that you turn on and you're like, am I already too <laughs> drunk to spend time with my family? <laughs> yes, absolutely. There's definitely a, a lack of modern rap holiday music. Like I, I would want the City Girls or Megan the Stallion to just make like a super raunchy Christmas record together. I would love like a Megan and Cardi Christmas album. I am legitimately dreading the WAP Christmas parodies that are called like rap, like W-R-A-P. And it's like rapping presents that are going to inevitably come out. They're like clenching my whole body against it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. A Megan Christmas album is going to absolutely, that's, that's, that's going to absolutely dominate. That's all for this special holiday episode. I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. It's produced by Emers Eller and me, mixed by Michelle Lands. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker and Morgan Jones, and for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web, the mobile app, or on any Echo device. to Smartless. Smartless is the podcast that I host with my friends who are more like brothers. The super talented and funny Will Arnett and Sean Hayes is JJ well, JJ JJ. Why are you yeah. Why are you whispering? Well, it, there's there's a pst in the in the in the copy. But people are listening, so it's like they are listening. Like, okay. Yeah. In each episode of Smartless, one of us reveals our mystery guest to the other two. What ensues is a genuinely improvised and authentic conversation. Our mystery guests span. Our mystery. We'll cut this out. Our mystery guests. All right, here we, we go. We got a lot of big famous people from different walks of life, and if you're yeah, a Matt Wondery fan, then you're Emma gonna Stone. Yeah. Just you come and listen to it. We're on Wondery right now, and you can listen to us. And no matter what you're doing, you're at the gym or you're in the car, just listen to the podcast. Sean, tell them where they can find it. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye. Bye.